20, verse 15. It's a very short passage this morning, one of the shortest verses in the Bible uh, for our main text, but we are going to cover quite a bit of scripture this morning, uh, so buckle up. Um, you'll be flipping around a lot in your Bible. But the passage is very short, very simple, or at least it seems very simple. In Exodus 20, verse 15, it simply says, You shall not steal. And this is a passage that seems very straightforward. Uh, it, most of us probably think that we have a good grasp of it. Uh, we think that we probably do a good job at not breaking this commandment, at not violating this commandment. Uh, but as we've seen with all of the past commandments, it's, they're typically more complex. They're typically uh, deeper, and we typically break them more than we think we do. And so the passage is simply, you shall not steal. Let's pray again before we uh, really dive into this. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, again, the opportunity just to be here together uh, and worship you. Uh, God, we thank you that uh, <clears throat> we, we can be here to fellowship, to have community, to uh, be a local body of believers and lean on one another and, and, and worship with people who think like we do. Uh, God, I just pray this morning as we get into your word that you teach us, that you instruct us, that you convict us, uh, that, that, that you cause us to hate our sin but love our Savior. God, we, uh, that is our goal this morning. That's what we want more than anything is to love you and to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. So this command that seems very simple, you shall not steal uh, is, as all the other commandments, a little more complex than we actually think it is. Uh, first of all, we need to answer the question, what is it to steal? Well, why is stealing so bad? Because if you think about it, as Christians, we're constantly saying things like, well, you don't need to, have, uh, you don't need to put too much value on material things. You don't need to uh, care about your worldly things so much so why did God find it necessary to put in the Ten Commandments a command that would uh, that would preserve our earthly possessions that would preserve the things that we have why, why do Christians make such a big deal out of that if we're not supposed to care that much about our earthly things anyway and, and so I really started to dive into that what is it to steal what makes it such an egregious sin that God would put it in the Ten Commandments why is it such an awful thing to steal and actually uh, John Calvin in his Institutes of the Christian Religion has a section where he covers the Ten Commandments and he's very enlightening on this and I thought he had a great uh, I thought he had a great quote on what it is to steal it says, for we must consider that what each individual possesses has not fallen to him by chance, but by the distribution of the sovereign Lord of all, that no one can pervert his means to bad purposes without committing a fraud of divine dispensation. And so what Calvin is essentially saying is, everything that you have, everything that everyone else has, they have that because God has given it to them. And for you to take that from them through dishonest means means that you don't trust God's sovereignty and you want to rearrange his dispersion. You say, God, you didn't do a very good job there. And so when we talk about God's sovereignty and his authority over his creation, I, I want to look at a few passages this morning. And first of all, in Colossians 
chapter 1, verses 16. <clears throat> it says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So what that passage is telling us is not only is everything created by God through Christ, but everything is held together in him. So what that means to be held together in him, he sustains creation. So there's an idea, it's called deism, and basically the idea of deism is that God created the world, he created the universe, he wound it up like a, like a top, and then he just let it go. And he's not actively sustaining existence, he's not actively participating in his creation. That is not a Christian idea. Christianity teaches that God is sovereign and that he is actively upholding, actively sustaining the existence of his creation every moment. So if God were just to cease upholding existence, we would all cease to exist. He is continuously, he is at every moment causing you to exist, causing you to breathe in and breathe out. He is holding everything together. So it's not that he just created us and then we do our own thing. No, you would cease to exist if God ceased causing you to exist. Everything holds together in him. And not only that, but Romans, if you go to Romans chapter 9, we see that God has this ultimate authority over his creation, and he claims this ultimate authority over his creation, starting in verse 20. Paul writes, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So what Paul is saying there, he, he's, t he's teaching on God's sovereignty. He's saying, hey, God made everything. God causes everything to exist. Everything holds together in him. So why would he not have authority over it? Why would he not be able to do as he chooses? Now, I want you to understand that this type of authority that God claims, this ownership that God claims, he, this does not mean that God views us as toys, okay? He's not flippant. Um, he, he's not careless or sadistic with this authority that he has. He, he, he doesn't, and I think a lot of us have a view of uh, if you did any any kind of literature study in high school, you probably studied a little bit of Greek literature. And, and, and this idea that people have of God many times comes from Greek literature because a lot of the pagan gods of Greek mythology would simply toy with humans. I mean, they, they would basically sit up in wherever Greek gods hang out, and, and they would just jack with people all the time, okay? I mean, they, they were oftentimes sadistic. They were very flippant with human life and all of this Greek literature that we read. So I think a lot of people, because of that, they have a view of God as just this God who basically views us as just stuff that he can mess around with. Like it's a creation and he just likes to mess with us. But that's not the God that we worship at all. He's not flippant with his creation. He doesn't, he's not arbitrary in the things that he does. Everything is logical. Everything, uh, he is a God of grace, a God of love, but he does maintain the right 
to do as he pleases with his creation. He maintains the authority to do all things according to his will and his purpose. And we see that in Romans 9. And then if you go to Matthew chapter 5, we see Jesus speaking along these same lines. Matthew chapter 5 and Sermon on the Mount. In verse 43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And so what Jesus is teaching here, he's saying you need to love your enemies. You don't need to take vengeance yourself. Basically, you don't need to rearrange God's dispersion of prosperity, of possessions, of whatever he gives people. You don't need to rearrange that yourself because God has that under control. And there's going to be times where it doesn't make sense. There's going to be people that we think are evil that God chooses to give earthly possessions to. There's going to be the person down the street who you know is a horrible person, but for some reason they keep getting all these amazing jobs, they get promotions, they have all of this money, and you consider yourself to be a good, faithful Christian, and you don't have what they have. Jesus is saying that's going to happen, but at no point do you have the right to take it upon yourself to rearrange God's dispersion or God's distribution of blessings. And so when we look at all three of these passages together, we see the point that Calvin is trying to make. He's saying God is completely sovereign. Everyone has what they have because God has given it to them, because he has chosen to give it to them, whether it's earthly possessions, whether it's prosperity, whether it's health, whether it's authority, such as a government official, they have what they have because God has given it to them. And to steal that from them challenges God's sovereignty and his authority and attempts to rearrange his distribution. Basically, when you steal, when you gain things through dishonest means or take something that's not rightfully yours... You were saying to God, God, I really think you messed up here, so let me just fix it for you. That's what it is to steal, and that's why it's such a heinous sin, because we're telling God that, why don't you let me take over for just a second, then I'll fix this for you. That's what it is to steal. You question God's authority. And so, hopefully we, we kind of have a, a grasp of what it is to steal, why it's such a sin to steal. We need to understand how we steal. Because like with all the other commandments, I don't know about you, but I've been coming in for the past few weeks like, uh, you know, this commandment seems pretty straightforward, but I just wonder, you know, find out new ways that I break God's law every week. Okay, this is, it's not going to be any different this week, I'm sorry. Uh, we need to understand how we steal. And the first way that we break the Eighth Commandment that, that we're going to talk about this morning, and I think this is an extremely important topic to discuss, um, many scholars believe that in Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, when it says, you shall not steal, they believe that the specific object that is being stolen the original purpose of this command was to condemn man-stealing. So essentially it's condemning kidnapping and forced slavery. 
And, and there's several reasons for this. Three of the main reasons uh, are, number one, the context of this command. It comes in the midst of a lot of other commands that deal with basic human rights. And so it would make sense when we say that you shall not steal, this would really... You shall not steal a person, you shall not kidnap a person, you shall not oppress a person, you shall not steal a person's basic human rights. It would make sense that this would fit in with the commands that surround it. <clears throat> Secondly, um, if it's just talking about general theft, which this, the Eighth Commandment does have an application towards general theft, but if that's the only thing that it's talking about, technically that's all covered in the Tenth Commandment, when we're commanded not to covet, because you have to covet before you steal. You have an attitude of covetousness before you choose to steal. And so if this was only regarding theft in general, in the general sense, then that would be somewhat redundant when you get to the Tenth Commandment. And then finally, we also see this command repeated in the next chapter, uh, in Exodus chapter 21. In Exodus chapter 21, verse 16, we see another command regarding man-stealing. It says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. So the Bible clearly condemns forced slavery and man-stealing the next chapter over. So what this could be happening, so the Ten Commandments are what we refer to as uh, the moral law. Okay, Byron discussed quite a bit over the past several weeks and, and through this entire uh, study of Exodus that we have three types of law. You have the moral law, the civil law, which, um, which basically tells Israel how they should function as a nation. And then you have the ceremonial law, which is uh, the sacrificial system and, and, and all of those things. And so what you have here is you have a moral law listed in Exodus chapter 20. You have that same moral law listed in Exodus chapter 21 and given a punishment, issuing it as a civil law as well as a moral law. And, and so basically what you have is in chapter 21, it's taking the moral law and it's applying it to civil law because, you, I mean, you really can't enforce it if there's no punishment. And so what God does is he says... This is such a heinous crime to steal a person, to deprive them of their basic human rights, to sell them like they're an animal. That is such a heinous sin that it's worthy of the death penalty. He says that the next chapter over. And I think this is an extremely important topic to cover because there are a lot of opponents of Christianity, there are a lot of opponents of the Bible that view slavery as the Achilles heel of the Bible. They say, well, if you read the Bible, it clearly condones slavery. And so how can your religion be good? How can it be loving? How can it be merciful if, if your Bible condones slavery? Well, the truth is it doesn't. The Bible is never comfortable with slavery. A couple weeks ago, we had a parent seminar on race. And we discussed how the new, we went through several New Testament passages that uh, clearly condemn partiality, condemn the idea of I'm better than someone else based on any characteristic, whether it's skin color, uh, socioeconomic status, whatever, the sin of partiality is condemned. And we also discussed that if you look throughout history, everywhere Christianity has spread, slavery has ended thereafter. 
Since the late 1860s, when the, uh, the empire of Spain abolished slavery within its empire, the majority of the world has been without slavery, at least without legal slavery. And that is largely due to the presence of Christian influence on the society. But it's not just the New Testament that condemns slavery. We're here all the way back in Exodus, and we see that the Bible clearly condemns the the depriving a person of their basic human rights and treating them as if they're subhuman. Now, the issue that people are going to bring up is they say, well, there is language in the Bible that seems to condone slavery. We see language, we see words used like slave or servant and master and things like that. And there were forms of slavery that were seemed to be permitted by Scripture. But it is not the same kind of slavery that we think of when we think of the African slave trade from the 17th to the 18th centuries or the 17th to the 19th centuries, actually. It's not the same type of slavery. It's more of of what's called an indentured servitude. And so basically what would happen is, if there was a family that was either in extreme poverty or had extreme debt, they would often sell themselves into servitude or into slavery for the price of that debt. And oftentimes, if someone was in extreme debt and someone brought a lawsuit against them, the courts might sell that person into servitude or slavery for their debt. Okay, and this is nothing like going to someone's homeland, kidnapping them, treating them as if they're an animal, and then selling them. It is not the same type of slavery. It was most of the time, willfully entering into this agreement with a master, entering into this servitude agreement. Or it was a punishment for for the crime of of being delinquent on your debt. And even at that, the Bible gives timelines for uh, for this servitude. The, the, The year of Jubilee, okay, which Israel never really recognized, even though they were commanded to, At the year of Jubilee, all debt was supposed to be forgiven and land was supposed to be returned to the original owner every 50 years. And there's also a six-year limit set on most indentured servitudes in in the Bible. And so the Bible cares a lot about preserving basic human rights. It cares a lot about justice. The idea that, that the Bible condones or is comfortable with slavery is just false. And, and, and there's really three things. So while there is a certain type of slavery, this, this indentured servitude seems to be permitted by Scripture, there's three things we need to realize. There are several guidelines that masters must follow in their conduct towards slaves. A, a big chunk of the law is how masters should treat their slaves. The Bible's very concerned with, with the treatment of the oppressed and, and, and of the poor. There's also the time limits that we mentioned that were set on the service. And the scriptures never actually affirm this practice. What it does is it just simply, uh, it simply views it as a reality of the time and culture. That's one thing we have to realize is the Bible is written by real people to real people in a real time and place. And the truth was, uh, 
slavery, especially this indentured servitude, was common practice. And the Bible never really seems extremely comfortable with it. That's why it goes to such great lengths to protect the servant or the slave. But it does realize that that was just a reality during this time period, and cultures are extremely slow to change. I mentioned in the parent seminar uh, that the New Testament and the Old Testament clearly preach against, clearly speak out against slavery. But it took until the late 1860s to abolish legal slavery throughout most of the world. That's because cultures change very slowly. And so what the Bible does is it morally preaches against slavery, but it also gives practical instructions to the master-servant relationship to protect the servant before slavery is abolished. And I think this is important because you will have people, you will come across people who use this argument and they say, well, the Bible condones slavery, and so I don't really know how you could be a Christian when it's based on a book like that. Well, the Bible does not condone slavery. It doesn't support or affirm slavery. And Christian influence is the primary reason. If you look up your, in, in your history book, typically the areas with the most Christian influence abolish slavery first. So that is uh, one way that you can break the Eighth Commandment, that you can violate this Eighth Commandment is through man-stealing. It's clearly condemned by Scripture, but there's also uh, the, the, the word that's used here that's translated steal can also be translated into deceive. So not only, can you, uh, not only can you break the Eighth Commandment by depriving someone of their basic human rights, but you can uh, break this commandment by deceiving someone. Look at Genesis chapter 31 with me. We're going to see where this word is used in a different context. I'm sure most of you are somewhat familiar with the story of Jacob. Uh, he cheated his brother Esau, and so he fled to his uncle Laban. Uh, he wanted to marry Laban's daughters, so Laban tricked him, uh, had him marry the, the wrong daughter, and then he worked another seven years, and then he got to marry uh, the, the woman that he loved, and God blessed Jacob, and, and Jacob came to a situation where he feared for his own safety, he feared for the safety of his family, because he was worried about Laban, what Laban was going to do. And, and so Jacob uh, deceives Laban, and, and he's pretending that everything's great, well then they just leave in the middle of the night to run away from Laban. And, and Laban catches up with him, and that's where we come to these couple verses in Genesis 31, 25, verse 25. And Laban overtook Jacob... Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? So that word tricked is the same word that's translated into steal in Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. And, and so... This specific example here, uh, Jacob might have been justified in deceiving Laban because he genuinely feared for his life. He didn't know what Laban was going to do. It was a very tense situation between the two. But the point that I'm trying to get at is this word that's translated into tricked is the same word that we're commanded not to do 
in Exodus 20, 15. So the point is when you deceive someone, when you're in a relationship with someone uh, and you are being deceptive, you are breaking the Eighth Commandment. And, and this deception can take many forms, but the truth is, if you're in a relationship with someone and you're not authentic about it, if it's just this facade, if, you're, if you have ill intent towards someone, but yet you're still pretending to be their friend, if you're deceiving anyone in any way, you're guilty of violating the Eighth Commandment. Laban thought everything was normal. He had no idea Jacob was about to leave. And Jacob just left in the middle of the night with, with Laban's daughters, with his grandchildren. And he didn't know what happened. It was very deceptive. And again, that might have been justified for Jacob to do that in this specific situation. But how often do we deceive others? How often are we dece deceptive in our relationships? For us, it's just this facade. We're not really, uh, we, we have ill intentions, but this other person thinks that this is a genuine relationship. But what happens when you do that? You're stealing that person of their emotional investment into that relationship. You're, you're robbing that person of their time and their effort into that relationship. So if you're in some sort of relationship with someone, whether it's a friendship, whether it's a romantic relationship, whatever, if you're deceiving them, if it's all just a facade, you're breaking the Eighth Commandment. You are stealing from them. Everything that they're investing in that relationship, you're robbing them of. And so it's not just general theft. It's not just taking people's stuff that makes us guilty of breaking this commandment. It's also deceiving them in any way. Which brings us into the next form of theft that we commit. And I mentioned it in, in deception, that is time. We steal people's time. How important is punctuality to you? Do you care if you arrive to appointments on time? Do you think about the other person's time that you're wasting if you're late? Being late most of the time is an Eighth Commandment violation, especially if you're very flippant with other people's time. Charles Spurgeon uh, was very adamant on being late and not caring about other people's time being a violation of the Eighth Commandment. He once wrote, If a man is to meet three others and arrives five minutes later than the appointed time, he is guilty of stealing 15 minutes. You've stolen five minutes from each of those other men. He also wrote, I ought not to insult anyone by supposing his time is worth nothing and that he himself is a nobody who may as well wait for me as not. How much value do we put on people's time? Do we steal it like it's nothing? Do, do, do you care if you're late to places? And, and I know this might seem very trivial. It might seem like it's not a huge deal. But what Spurgeon is saying is, you're robbing that person of their time. If you, and I understand that things happen and sometimes we're late. But if you have the attitude of, well, it's not that big of a deal if we're 10, 15 minutes late. What Spurgeon is saying, you're stealing those minutes from that person. Do you not care enough about them to preserve their own time? Do you not care enough about them to put value on their time? So we break the commandment by 
not being punctual and especially by not caring that we're not punctual. Another way that uh, Calvin's very adamant about that we steal is through being careless or flippant with your own money. Okay, remember at the root of this commandment is we need to respect God's sovereignty and we need to respect his wisdom in his distribution of blessings, whether that's wealth, time, health, whatever. We need to be respectful of God's sovereignty and what he has dispersed to each individual. So Calvin says the commandment forbids us to long after to long after other men's goods and accordingly requires every man to exert himself honestly in preserving his own. So if at the root of this is respecting God's sovereignty and his distribution, if you treat your own goods, which God gave you, flippantly, if you're wasteful with your money and your time or your health or your family or whatever God has blessed you with, if you treat that like it's no big deal and you're wasteful with it and you're flippant, then you're guilty of breaking the Eighth Commandment because you are not respecting God's sovereignty. You're not respecting His wisdom and choosing to give you those things. That's part of the reason the Bible makes such a big deal out of gambling. We're often instructed or advised to not gamble. The reason is that's being very flippant with what God has given you. And so we need to be careful, we need to be wise with what God has given us because it's not just taking other people's stuff. If you're careless with your own stuff that God has given you, then you're violating the Eighth Commandment. We also break this commandment by failing to give back to God and failing to give to our neighbor. Okay, the, the, the 10% tithe of the Old Testament no longer applies to us, that strict law of 10%. However, the concept and the command of giving has not been done away with, has never been done away with. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16. If you remember from our study in 1 Corinthians, you, you might remember this uh, command on giving and and tithing. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we read in verse 1 and 2, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So what Paul is saying is he's instructing these people on how to give. And, and, and we've always been instructed to give to the ministry of the local church, whatever church you're a part of, you need to support that ministry of the gospel going out in the community, and you also need to care for your neighbor. That's what the whole collection in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 16 is for, is they're helping the church in Jerusalem. That's what the collection is for. And, and so we've always been commanded to give to the local church and to our neighbor as we prosper. And so here's, here's the application of this. If you were not giving to the ministry of the local church, or you, if you were not helping your neighbor as much as you could be as you prosper, you were violating 
the Eighth Commandment. You are stealing from God, and Calvin says that you're stealing from your neighbor if you're not giving them what God has commanded. Uh, Last week, um, when Byron preached on murder, he said if we're not helping the poor, that's a form of murder. Well, it's also a form of theft because we're commanded to care for them. We're stealing from them, and we're also stealing from God. And so not giving as we prosper, not giving what we can, being selfish and being greedy is a form of theft. Another form that we see clearly in Scripture is being a lazy or unproductive employee. In Colossians 3.23, we see the command, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So when you go to your job, you're not just working a job. You're representing God. You're representing Jesus Christ in the workplace. And if you're a lazy or unproductive employee, what you're doing is you're stealing from your employer because they give you money to be there. And if you're not working like you should, if you're not earning those wages, then you're stealing from your employer. Not only are you stealing from them, you're stealing from God. You're breaking His command because He commands us in Colossians 3, work like you're working for me. And so we see where it's a violation of the Eighth Commandment. If you're not putting your best effort forward, if you're being careless or flippant with your employer's assets with their resources you're in violation of the eighth commandment but let's flip that around if you're a harsh or a stingy employer you're also in violation of the eighth commandment let's look at ephesians 6 9 i told y'all we were going to be jumping around a lot in ephesians chapter 6 verse 9 if i can find it In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9, we see masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. And and so what this command is saying, he's saying if you're an employer, if you're a boss, if you're a business owner, whatever, if you're in some sort of uh, position of authority over employees, don't you dare start to think that you're above them. Don't you dare start to think that you don't owe them their their just wages. Because you both ultimately have the same master in heaven. You both ultimately have to answer to the same person in heaven. And so this relationship goes both ways. It's possible for the employee and the employer to break the eighth commandment. And then finally, I wanted to save this one for last because I know people love it. In a couple months, well, maybe not in a couple months, if you procrastinate, not in a couple months, but in a couple months, some of you will start putting forms together to file your taxes. I know it's a great time of year, everyone loves it, but you're going to start putting forms together to file your taxes, and you're going to be tempted to maybe leave some stuff out, because you don't want to pay those taxes to the government. Well, I would remind you of Matthew chapter 22, verse 21. This is Jesus speaking when he says, uh, Therefore, 
Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Christianity, the teachings of Christianity, do not give you the right to cheat on your taxes. We are called to be honest and productive citizens of whatever nation we're in. The Roman Empire was not a good empire. They were evil. They were brutal. Jesus does not use that as permission for people to not pay their taxes. So no matter what you think about our government, if you want to fulfill your Christian duty in being a responsible, productive, and honest citizen, you need to pay your taxes honestly. And so these forms of theft, and, and, and there are many more, time doesn't permit us to go through all the different ways we steal, but this is a pretty good starter list of ways that we break the Eighth Commandment. We steal things, we try to rearrange God's distribution constantly. I know I was convicted of several of these as I was preparing this sermon. We are all guilty of breaking the Eighth Commandment. We do it a lot. We steal, we rearrange God's distribution a lot. However, there is hope for us. There is grace that's offered, and we see that in the passage I read earlier in Luke chapter 23. We see it at the cross. Matthew uh, calls the criminals next to Jesus thieves. And so... Jesus is speaking to a thief just like us. This man next to Jesus is a robber. He's guilty of stealing. He's guilty of breaking the Eighth Commandment to the point that his government has chosen to put him to death. And let's read those words from Jesus again. It starts off in verse 39 and says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So one criminal, one thief chooses to mock Jesus. He, he says, Jesus, aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you supposed to be some sort of savior? Well, you can't even save yourself. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation And we, indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. So this other thief, what's happened is while he's hanging on the cross, he realizes his guilt. He realizes that I'm not just guilty of stealing from other people. I'm not just guilty of breaking the laws of the Roman Empire. I am guilty of stealing from God. I am guilty of sinning against him. He fully realizes his guilt. He realizes, I haven't just stolen from people. I haven't just hurt people. I haven't just rebelled against Rome. I've rebelled against the God of the universe, and I have stolen from him. And he recognized that the man hanging next to him in Jesus was the perfect son of God. And look at this plea from him. He turns to Jesus, and verse 42, he says, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. I love that. The, the, the man offers Jesus nothing. He realizes that he has absolutely nothing to offer. And it's almost like 
It's almost not even like a statement. It's almost a question. He's almost saying, Jesus, could, could you? Could you remember me when you go into your kingdom? Will you remember me when you go into your kingdom? It, it, it's almost like he's not 100% sure, but what he does know is if there's any salvation for him, it's in this man hanging next to him. What he does recognize, if there's any way to save him from his guilt of, of, of theft, it's Jesus. And so he has this plea, Jesus, remember me. And so in that, what we see is we not only see a plea, we see a cry for forgiveness, but we see a profession of faith because he knows if anything is going to save him, it's this man right here. And Jesus turns to him and he says, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Because of this man's faith, because he recognized his guilt, he turned towards the Savior, he repented of his sin, and he sought forgiveness, he sought redemption. In Jesus, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. And that is the hope that we have as thieves. We are utterly guilty of breaking God's law. Not just the eighth commandment, every commandment. If the past few weeks haven't taught you anything, I hope that the one thing that it, that it does teach you is that we are utterly sinful. We are utterly guilty of breaking God's law. And our only hope is the same hope that this thief on the cross had when he turned to Jesus and just said, Jesus, remember me. So this morning, I, I hope if, if you don't know grace, if you don't know what this criminal seemed to know, I pray that you recognize your guilt you look at God's law and, and, and you look at yourself, you, you judge yourself by God's law and you realize how sinful you are, you realize how depraved and wicked you are, but then I pray that you turn to Jesus and you say, Jesus, remember me. I know that I'm guilty, I know that I'm condemned, but I also know that there's hope in you and cling to him this morning. Find, don't leave here this morning, find somebody, come talk to me. Talk to someone you know and, and, and trust and say, I really don't know what this hope is. I don't know what it is to look to Jesus. I don't know what it is to seek forgiveness from him. Talk to somebody about that this morning. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that you offer thieves. We thank you for uh, the forgiveness that you offer sinners. And God, I, I just really pray that we're convicted of our sin. We're, we're instructed that I, I pray that we repent from this sin and we turn away from it and, and, and we seek to steal no more. But in that, most of all, I hope that we turn to Jesus and we just say those simple words, remember me. Forgive me for my theft. Forgive me for my rebellion. Forgive me for my sin against you and remember me. I hope that we put our trust in him and that we have faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and our Lord and Savior. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. We sing.